Welcome to the World of Wellness, your one-stop shop for education, inspiration, and practical tools to build a healthy, sustainable, holistic lifestyle. I'm your host, Megan Zucra, and together we're gonna get fit, feel good, and have fun. Let's do this. everybody. Welcome to another episode of the World of Wellness podcast. I'm your grateful host, Megan Zucra. I'm so excited to be here today and to bring to you a special guest, Eric Berg, Reverend Dr. Eric Berg. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Eric probably about seven years ago at Pacific Ashtanga Yoga Shala, where we practice Ashtanga together. And recently I started taking a meditation class from Eric and I've I've been dabbling in meditation for probably close to seven years now, um, really getting into it within the last year. And even in the last month of taking a few classes from Eric, my mind has completely expanded and my perception of meditation has changed and what I'm trying to get out of it has changed because most of my experience was with guided meditations. But with learning from Eric, I'm learning how to do it without that. And oh my gosh, what a huge awareness to learn meditation on your own and in a group, but with zero guidedness. It's a very eye-opening awareness of what is actually going on in your mind. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because it was very enlightening for me and I hope it is for you too. A little bit of background about Eric for you. Eric was lucky enough to be raised in a spiritualist tradition and has known meditation as key since the age around five while finishing his PhD in energy particle physics at UCLA. He explored Zoto Zen meditation for about five years in the San Francisco Bay area, um, Los Angeles and San Diego areas as well. And then he met an amazing teacher named Shibuya Sensei in LA, whose explanations really made sense and made made meditation clear for Eric. And he trained with him at Thirdava Buddhist Temple. Sorry if I got that wrong. Um, for many long nights before he had his first experience of jhana, which we're going to talk about in this podcast. And it suddenly became very clear and spacious and awesome for Eric. So I'm excited to hear have you guys hear that part of the conversation. And then at that time, about 25 years ago, Eric started his yoga practice with Tim Miller. And so since then, physics, yoga, and meditation have been his specialties with UC Irvine, Diana Christensen at Pacific Ashtanga Yoga Shala and Shibuya Sensei, respectively. And professionally, he is a debate dinking science for a few years and continues to teach meditation at Diana's studio, Pacific Ashtanga Yoga Shala, and online for the love of it and wanting to share it with you all. So without further ado, here is Dr. Reverend Eric Berg. All right, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? They can get to know you a little bit. Thank you for having me. I'm Eric Berg. I'm a meditator, a yogi, a physicist, and here to answer questions and talk about meditation. Exciting. Um, so 
I noticed, so I've been, I've taken two classes with you so far on Wednesday evenings via zoom for meditation. And those have been very interesting for me. I've been meditating (laughs) for probably close to five years now. And the two sessions that I've done with you have been a lot different than anything that I've experienced. But the first thing that I wanted to ask was I noticed one of the students yesterday, um, one of your titles is Bodhi. Okay. Can we, can we talk about that? What is, what does that stem from? Where did that come from? How did you get it? I'm, I'm, is it, is it short for Bodhisattva? Uh, Well, it's it's Sanskrit. So it's related in that way, but it's an ordination name. Um, When I met my teacher about 20, 25 something years ago, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, at the Theravada temple in Los Angeles, um, after practicing there some time, uh, I was ordained as a, a lay minister. And in a lot of Buddhist traditions, they give you a Dharma name when you're ordained. In the Theravada tradition, those Dharma names typically are Sanskrit and they often are historical. Um, so for instance, my teacher's ordination name was Sabuti. So I, I just call him Sensei or Shibuya Sensei, but Sabuti was his Theravada ordination name and mine was Bodhi. Literally, it means may you wake up. It's the same word as Buddha and uh, Bodhidharma and Bodhisattva. They're all about waking up, which is enlightenment and that kind of thing. Um, So in your, tell me about your upbringing with a spiritual tradition and how, how did you grow up that kind of led you to be who you are today? Okay. My, I was raised by my mother, um, parents divorced, and she was, uh, she was very interested in a lot of the more supernatural, like the psychic phenomena. Um, but when I was you know, just a really little kid, we went through the transcendental meditation, uh, and I, I got a secret word, you know, the thing you're supposed to, the mantra you're supposed to recite when you practice your meditation. And you're not supposed to tell anybody, but I told my babysitter, you know, so... That was pretty early. But then she got involved in another group down in Encinitas, a spiritualist church. And like most spiritualist philosophies, um, they teach that you can do these these things, psychic things, but you have to meditate in order to do them. And that's been part of the philosophy for over a century. So I grew up really seeing meditation as the key to succeeding there and and also the key to knowing my mind i think i really didn't understand it until much later in my life but that's that's what led me in that direction so how old were you when you first started meditating i'm guessing five or six (laughs) it's amazing it's pretty young yeah so my mom would uh yeah sitting still um just for a period of silence on your own basically, and then reciting the mantra for transcendental meditation. So was there, was there other kids your age who were meditating with you? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) So, I I mean, what, what was, what was that like? I mean, did you like want to share this meditation with your friends or to kind of tell them what you were doing or was it just kind of something that you did at home? Oh, it was, it was just something I did at home. Um, you know, when I, I got in high school, I, I started 
participating more in my mother's uh, practice of spiritualism. Um, and so there, there were, of course, other people and can share it freely there. But as a kid, uh, it was it's more just, just me and my mom. And I think, you know, that had some effect on me, right? Yeah. Kind of a secret that I would keep from the other kids and all the issues that would come from that. Did you have like a earlier awareness? I mean, I'm, I'm presuming, but that must be interesting to be a little bit more aware of you and your surroundings, especially as a teenager and a young adult for people around you. Um, did you ever try to like teach that to anybody else or was it just kind of like you, your secret if when you got into your teens and early adulthood? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, remembering going around high school and, you know, just seeing things from a different perspective just because of that background. Um, but I really, I didn't try sharing it really or teaching it or you know, sharing what I've learned um, until I guess it was about college age, so early 20s. And I was nervous, you know, I didn't, I knew the forms, but I didn't, I hadn't really succeeded in getting to the deepest levels. So I didn't have a lot of wisdom about it, but uh, it was fun. Uh, when did you start teaching meditation? Uh, I think that was 85. Okay. So it was a while ago. Yeah, that's, that's. Eight. But I can't say I really learned it until probably 93. <laughs> so the first period, I was, like I said, I was just kind of teaching the forms, not the essence. Yeah. Well, I also think, especially me as a teacher and a student, as I am a student, kind of going with it, it helps me to learn it better by teaching it as well. You know how in oh, yeah. school they have you do that too. If you're learning something, you got to recite it to the class. Yep. So what's the point and the purpose of meditation? That's a big one. Um, so uh, a lot of people might think uh, meditation is a great escape. You know, go to a spa, go to a vacation. Um, but actually meditation is not an escape. It's where you practice to be a better and stronger and happier person. That's that's different from an escape. And if you're if you go on a vacation, you feel good because the conditions have gotten better. When you meditate, you become better. That's a big distinction because most of the time, we blame our circumstances for being unhappy or our difficulties. But a lot of the times, the cause is ourself. Right? We are our worst enemy. Um, you know we. We grow up and we have issues that we get even from the best of parents, um, just from existing and you know, dealing with those issues or learning how to be who you are, learning how to be happy. It's not the easiest thing in the world. So meditations where you're working to 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 do that, to be, learn how to be happy, I would say. Um, on, a, on the more superficial side, I would say that Somebody might meditate just to be more centered before performance, before confrontation, before an exciting moment, you know, something like that, just in preparation, because you want to be more focused and, and be able to do that better. 
Uh, on the deeper side, um, not only maybe do you not want to just develop your yourself by overcoming difficulties, but you might want to discover the full extent of your mind. You know, you're you're more than you think you are. You could have an experience of the divine or the whole or nature or you know something along those lines. So those are all all reasons and. People can come up with lots of reasons, but I think those are some good ones. Um, this makes me think, I didn't share this yesterday, but it, I had three very interesting visualizations yesterday um, meditating. The first was, I, I was meditating with my hands like this, and I had my prayer beads in my hands. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the visualization that I got was there was a heart being amplified in this white light around my hands. That was very interesting. And then um, the other visualization I got was I saw these two stems. They were like maroon coming up and then they looked like brain stems coming out into this like pink light. (laughs) And then another one is that I saw like all of my chakras light up and my body, like in a meditation position. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Everyone's very unique. Yeah. When you quiet your mind, anything can come up and it's going to be different for different people. It might come up from you. It might be coming up from uh, some connection to the whole or however you might express that. Um, And I guess here's a good place to make the distinction. When I say meditating, I'm talking about the the development, the practice. You might meditate because you want to have some connection to the divine and have some, some inspirations like that. So you might meditate and then have those experiences. It's like you, the quieting of the mind is meditating. Once you're quiet, then you can have those experiences. A subtle distinction on on what might motivate a person to meditate. So do you you think that when somebody's going in to start meditating, that it's important to have an intention with it or no? Well, meditation is about changing you. Your intentions are part of you. Hmm. So, you know, the most fundamental intention is generosity, (laughs) gratitude. And that just by having that intention, you've already strengthened the good side of you. So yeah, any of those choices can make your meditation easier. I mean, if, if you're meditating so that you can get back at your neighbor or something, right? Something mean, right? <laughs> and that good meditation, right? you're going to be very disturbed. And that's what you're saying too—that we go into meditation with wanting to be calm before we have a performance or if we're going to have a confrontation and something it's in that recentering. So ooh, really, really depends on, it's usually for a positive thing. <laughs> now, what do you think about, um, okay, well, let me ask you this question first. What's the difference in a completely silent meditation and a guided meditation or a visualization meditation and kind of what's the the pro con of each of those i guess yeah um 
So let me let me give you a couple terms. Sure. Um, there are two Sanskrit terms that we translate into meditation. The first one is bhavana. And maybe a different translation would be mental development. So it's it's sort of the things you do to become better. So you could go jogging, and that could be part of your bhavana. Um, the other term is Zen, really. Zen is the Japanese form of what, what I would say is jhana, because I, in my tradition, it's use the Pali language, but in Sanskrit, it's dhyana, the eighth limb of Ashtanga Yoga. And if you translate that from, if you translate that one, we, you could say it's meditation, but really it's the state of meditation. So bhavana is the work, the things you do to, to try to get there, or just to be a better person. And then jhana is that state of perfect absorption and peace and connectedness and wholeness. So a little bit different. Um, now, if you're trying to get to that state, it might be very difficult. I mean, it's, it's generally very difficult for everybody, but depending on your degree of, of difficulty, you might not try to sit down and be quiet. It might be too hard to do that. Say you, you just had a confrontation and you're very angry and you want to meditate in order to calm down. Maybe best thing to do would be to take a walk and do a walking meditation. Um, you know, the other uh, practices like yoga and Tai Chi and all the martial arts, all those are very good at focusing your mind. Just like uh, walking, fundamentally a pilgrimage has been a very spiritual practice. But, you know, eventually as you're walking, eventually you sit down. And in yoga, eventually you've strengthened your body in all the different ways. Again, you can sit down in meditation for a longer period of time. All the breathing exercises, now you can breathe freely and, and breathe with presence. So in some sense, they're preliminary, but in practice, they're just the things that you can do when it's too difficult to go directly to perfect bliss, right? <laughs> And you mean the like guided meditations or yeah, that's yeah. another one. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody's curious about the meditation journey and wants to start meditating and they never have before, what would you suggest that they start doing? Go someplace that you love someplace near your home, someplace where you can be alone and quiet. And just sit there for a while. Don't have any plans. Don't have. Don't try to do anything. Just let yourself coast to rest. All the pieces of your mind know where to go. So if you sit still, they'll all fall back together and you'll become more whole. So just try that. Just sit peacefully. Let yourself come back together. And that means no TV, no phone, no book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do what you can to avoid the distractions, right? Put yeah. your phone on mute or airplane mode. Yeah. yeah. So are there different phases of meditation that we go through? Uh, those different degrees of depth, right? And, you know, we have terms for, for each of the different stages you go through. Um, 
So obviously there's the, where we're at right now in our minds. We're, in Buddhism, they, they have a whole cosmology to it, kind of a description of where your mind can be. And so right now you might say we're in the human realm where sometimes we're suffering and sometimes we're not. But we're very active, we're involved. Um, if things go awry, you could end up in a hell realm where you're suffering and you're angry or something. But you can go the other direction toward perfect meditation. And in that direction, you, you first thing you probably get to um, is that your body and your mind just kind of relax and slow down by itself. So the way that feels to me, my breathing suddenly slows down by itself. So it's like I've given myself permission to relax. And then after some time, I do relax. It's not something you can force yourself to do, though. And about that same time, my emotions all come to equilibrium. I don't have any you know, feelings one way or another. So I'd say that's really the first, first stage or first landmark you might notice. The really important landmark is this state of Zen or jhana. And you know, Buddha laid out like all nine stages all the way to nirvana. But really, if you get to the first one, it changes your life. It's really miraculous and inspiring. And, um, and when I experienced that, it, it totally shifted who I am. So that's really a good kind of thing to aim toward. Um, and the way that feels is you're, you're meditating. It's been a half an hour, 45 minutes. And your, your focus keeps drifting. You keep bringing it back. Keeps drifting, keep bringing it back. Suddenly, it's always sudden for some reason, your mind lets you just focus. It's like the little part of you stops struggling against you. Suddenly, you feel very spacious. You might see bright light. You feel wonderful. Your skin tingles. Um, when I first felt it, I felt like I could sense every molecule of air in front of me. It was really weird. Um, yeah, and so suddenly it becomes very easy. And I, and I say the hard part's over. <laughs> so you get over that the hard part, then suddenly it becomes easy. And the hard part of quieting, what's the hard part? The 10,000 things that are disturbing in life. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, you're angry at your neighbor, you're unhappy with yourself. I mean, that's really the fundamental thing, right? If you can be happy with yourself, then nothing else really matters. If you're happy with what you're doing, you know, are, are you a good person in your own eyes? That kind of thing. I'm actually really happy that you just said that because I've noticed the last three or four days in this, I, I, I've 100% had a very <laughs> negative self-talk, but I'm walking around today. Like you're doing so great, Megan. Like, I'm really proud of you, Megan. I'm like, where is this? Where's this good? Where's this coming from? <laughs> but it's such a, it's such, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to use this word, but like, it's such like an uplifting, I wanted to say lightning, but it's a very uplifting feeling to feel good about what you're doing. And I can only mm -hmm. think that the effort that I've gone through of meditating twice a day <laughs> for at least the last year 
is kind of like paying off over time to get to that state to where I can feel happy and proud of what I'm doing. So that leading into my next question of how long does it usually take people with their practice to get into a shift their state on a big scale? Yeah. Well, that, that, that really changes. It yeah. really depends too. Um, but there are a couple of typicals I can share with you. Yeah. Um, so when I started teaching down at the Shala here in Dana Point, uh, it's about four, four years ago, five years ago. Um, I think the people who are coming, I think they really noticed a big shift after a few months, maybe six months. Um, suddenly the noise from the neighbors didn't bother them as much. Suddenly they were able to settle down much deeper. Um, so there's, there's that kind of a time scale. And, you know, every time you come to sit and meditate, you bring with you what happened that day. So tonight may be good, tonight may be bad, and you just have to be happy with your effort. The other time scale I've noticed is if you go on retreats, you know, there's a lot of meditation retreats you can go on, that after about three days, you know, it could be two or four days, it just depends on the person, um, that people typically hit, kind of hit a wall where it suddenly becomes very difficult. And when you go through that, when you persist through that, um, there's a lot of reward on the other side of, of feeling more resolved in, in yourself. But yeah, who knows how quickly you can process your personal issues. I mean, every, every one you process, you become happier. So it, it's good along the way. You know? And eventually you, you could break through to this state of Zen or state of jhana. Um, but yeah, it doesn't just happen. You have to... Uh, I think you, you have to put effort up, effortless effort. Yesterday, I heard you say that your meditation wasn't as good as the previous couple. And I've definitely, <laughs> well, I can completely relate because I, I remember practicing last week and I yoga and I, I could not focus and it just didn't like my body didn't feel good. I kept trying to focus on my drifting, <laughs> just no pragyahar whatsoever, just all over. Is that, and as much as I tried, like I, I noticed it came right back, noticed where I was going, came right back. Is that normal to go through these phases of where you're not getting as deep into the meditative state as you normally do? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, was saying I shouldn't have said it had bad meditation. <laughs> if you put in the effort, it's a good meditation. It yeah. doesn't matter about the results. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then as an aside, you mentioned pratyahara, which is the sense withdrawal. That's that's a big part of meditating is to turn your awareness internally. But and to answer your question, yeah, we totally go through these phases. Um, so, like I said you bring into your meditation, your, your day's experience. So if you had a difficult day, maybe a difficult meditation, um, but also in your life, you know, uh, over years, you, you may have good years and more challenging years. And, and then as you experience meditation, there's actually something that happens quite a lot. Suppose you, you work at it for, you know, people get very excited the first couple of years they get into meditation. So suppose you get 
this state of jhana one evening on your, in your first couple of years. Then right after that, you're so excited, you want to have it again. And you keep trying and you can't. And it's kind of a trick because it's kind of like love. You know, if you try to get love, you can't get it. You need to make space for it. Same with this meditation. You don't experience doing nothing by trying to do something. <laughs> so you, you stop doing things and then you feel how wonderful it feels to not be doing anything. <laughs> Sounds funny. Well, that so means people get stuck there. sorry. So people get stuck there, and they try to recreate that exact experience. Um, and I got stuck there for years before I had, I had my next experience of it. Um, because it, it's different each time. I mean, because you're present, you're in the moment, and each moment is different. So your experience is going to be different. You can't recreate the exact same thing. That's. Sounds like don't have any expectations, no matter what, <laughs> and just accept whatever comes. Yeah, you, you don't want to judge your meditation. You don't want to tell yourself you had a bad meditation like I did. Right. <laughs> I don't think you called it bad. You just said it wasn't as good as the last couple. But I, I can understand what you're saying. And I think a lot of people can, where it's like, I didn't have as good of a workout or I didn't have as good as yoga practice, but it's just part of the process. Yeah, exactly. You put in the effort. That's the, that's the big thing. Because the effort is what overcomes the obstacles. And it's the overcoming of the obstacles that you get better at. In relating that back to life too, is that we grow <laughs> as a person every time we hit an obstacle. So really meditation's teaching you how to take your internal obstacles going through those and applying that same practice when you hit external obstacles. Yeah. There's no difference between meditation and life in that sense. I'm, I'm curious as to what you think holds us back from one, applying those and two, applying the yeah, I guess applying it. What do you think holds most people back from applying their meditation to real life? Do you see that it kind of coincides together or have you seen where sometimes it's like, okay, I meditated, but I don't take any of those practices into my life? Um, I can see a, a person being frustrated. I meditate an hour every morning and I still struggle. Yeah, that kind of frustration um yeah you just you have to be happy with your effort and just be happy with the progress that you are making um yeah i'm not sure what else to say that's okay um what do you what do you think is the biggest You've been doing it for a long time, <laughs> but what do you, for you, what's been your biggest shift or awareness with having a meditation practice on, on, on a big scale? Or whatever scale you want to talk about. <laughs> well. I was once a kid, now I'm an adult. <laughs> How do you put that into a sentence? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like waking up. That's why Buddha talked about enlightenment as waking up. They asked, you know, are you 
of human or deity and said, oh, I'm awake. <laughs> and you feel like a different person when you wake up. You're no longer playing the same stories, the same patterns, the same reactions. Um, because you know, you're able to see what is happening as it goes on. You see yourself starting to react. You get to know your reaction patterns, and then you can start overcoming them. You know? I mean, we're all, we're all doing that anyways, even if you don't meditate. So yeah. meditation is just kind of hitting it face on. Do you think it's a way for us to see ourselves from like a third eye view or like a bird's eye view? Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, one of the mindfulness techniques. Basically, the, the first, first big thing to get this state of Zen is to separate from all things that could disturb you. So if you're if you're involved in it, if you own it, like this is me, then you're not separate from it. You, you have to you know, maybe look at your body and say, okay, that's my body, that's not me. You have to look at your life and say, okay, that's my life, that's not me. Now, that one's really hard because we feel responsible. We created our life, right? Um, or what about you look at your thoughts and say, my thoughts are not me. Well, that's really difficult because I really feel like my thoughts, right? But, you know, the more you separate from it, the more you can see it from a third-person perspective, um, then you're free of any kind of reaction patterns that, that would trigger. I'm curious, what are our thoughts? What are our thoughts? <laughs> okay, well, let me, let me go to yoga to answer that. So there's okay, the okay. kushas, right? Yeah, okay. There's, there's the food body. Mm -hmm. You know that one. There's the energy body, the pranayama, kusha. And I like to think of that one as being emotions because emotions move our energy, right? And the third one is the manamaya kusha, which is the thinking kusha, the cognitive, you know, reasoning. So when you're asking what are your thoughts, I would say they are fluctuations of your manamaya kusha, fluctuations of that part of your being. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're looking for. My brain just has to take a couple steps back because <laughs> I'm with you. Um, but it's well, like hard to talk about, right? Yeah, it is. Let me go a little further there. Okay. So I think you can relate to having pain in your body. Right? Yeah. It's a simple thing. Right. You can relate to having emotions that are very difficult, that are unpleasant. That's not so difficult to imagine. You can imagine being stuck on a problem you just can't let go. I mean, I've, I've sometimes I have spent stayed awake all night trying to solve a problem, and I can't let it go, even though I know I need to go to sleep. You know, so it's the same idea. You've got some fluctuation in your physical, your emotional, or energy, or your thinking koshas that you're trying to resolve. You can go one further. The next kosha, um, the jnanamaya kosha, that one's, jnana is like knowledge, same, same Sanskrit stem. So I like to think of it as your truths, but it's also like your values, or, you know, what, what's important to you. Now, when we struggle on that level, we're trying to figure out, you know, what to do in a situation. It's a moral conundrum, maybe, or what to do in your life. 
what's important in your life? What's your life purpose? <laughs> That's a different kind of struggle, right? So meditation is where you try to resolve all these struggles, your body, your emotions, your thoughts, your truths. And if you, if you can resolve them, even just for a short period of time, you feel wonderful. It sounds impossible, but you can do it. <laughs> you just have to be persistent and gentle. <laughs> this is so fun for me. So, okay, I have 8,000 questions running through my brain at once. <laughs> okay, well, at least it's not 10,000. Okay, that's true. Okay. You're right. You're right. So, <clears throat> I guess my first question would be, are all of these things part of our physical experience? They're, I guess not, because I mean, they are. Are they, are they attached to our physical experience or are they a part of our um, soul or like, inner being experience is, is the, my question is it part of like our spirit or is it part of our physical experience i guess yeah both okay that's a simple answer <laughs> i mean you can have very specific answers based on your religion right? yeah 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 Death, reincarnation all that kind of thing. But we, we have a mind and we have a body. We know that. There's no question of religion based on that. And what we're talking about resolving all these things is our mind and our body together. Well, I guess is our thinking part of our body or is our thinking a part of our energetic being? I guess it's kind of... Yeah. Go ahead. That goes more to the religion, and, and I have my own answers to that. Yeah. Meditations, it doesn't rely on med meditation, doesn't rely on that. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to answer what my answers are. I would, I would love to hear. I would love to hear. Yes, please. Um, so I believe in reincarnation. And so with that, I believe that there is a non physical me mm -hmm. that continues after my body dies. So while I'm alive, that non-physical me and the physical me are together. So some examples might be if I'm asleep, I might astrally project in my dreams. My non-physical is going somewhere, coming back. Um, memory is kind of an interesting thing. The, sometimes when you experience things in your non-physical uh, then you come back to your body, you, it'll be in your short-term memory, and you have to intentionally tell yourself what just happened. I mean, kind of loading it from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. Otherwise, you'll forget it. Um, so there's some interesting little things like that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think a related question might be, who are you? Are you your body or are you your spirit, right? That's kind of a big question. And, and we talk about nature or nurture. So that's your genes or your upbringing. So I just add a third one to that, and that's your, your past lives. That, that's a third influence on who you are. 
I'm curious as do you think, what do you think about, I believe in reincarnation. And maybe, maybe not to my understanding that you do, I'm sure, <laughs> but I've had experiences where like, I've like had memories of something. I've also specifically done meditations for it to kind of, I guess, think about them. Um, and kind of speaking to what you're saying, I've also had experiences where I'm meditating and I, I don't know if I don't feel anything leave my body, but I feel my energy interacting with other energy, <laughs> like almost like I'm having conversation with somebody else, but on the energetic level, <laughs> um, do you, do you think through reincarnation? And so, you know, we've had, we've had previous lives what do you think the point of reincarnation is or what is the point of reincarnation? Well, I, uh, I put that together with my Buddhist beliefs where we are going through the cycle of samsara to basically figure out how to be happy. Hmm. And it's not something that you can just decide. You have to know yourself to do it. Um, but eventually you can figure it out and eventually you don't need to be reborn again. And then eventually you merge back into the whole. That's what I believe. So do we reincarnate until we learn the lessons of being whole? Like, do we, do we carry on lessons from past lives into this life to try to heal those lessons or those, those in hmm. which basically, if you don't learn them, you have to do it again. <laughs> And more. Yeah. So I, I believe a couple of things along that lines. I believe that it's it's all you doing it. It's not like somebody making you do it. Yeah. Um, right. And then secondly, you know, you hear things like you were mean to somebody in your last life, so you, you have to be the victim of someone mean this life. I, I don't believe that. It, it's more like you you tried to learn how to love someone who hated you in your last life. And you didn't quite get it. So you want to try to learn how to love someone who hates you again this way. Now, I don't know why you might want to do that, but maybe. Maybe you want to love someone as a parent in your last life, but you didn't get that chance. So then you want to do it this life. Everybody has different wants. What makes you happy? I mean, there, I mean, Buddha talked about I like Buddhism because it has all these lists. <laughs> um, there's the 10 fetters, the, the Samya Jhana. Um, these are just categories of attachments. And they're the things that keep us living, keeping us coming, the things that motivate us to come back. Um, you know, we're, we're attached to sensual pleasure. We, we like it. We're attached to um, knowledge. We want to know things. And you, you could look up the list. It's, it's kind of interesting, but there. What is it? I'll write it down. Uh, they're called the fetters. In Sanskrit, it's samyojana. It's a different word than jhana. That's meditation. Jhana with meditation is spelled with an H. And samyojana, I think, is no H. 
Sanskrit, it's, it's not an H, but it's our English word. And what does that mean in Sanskrit? I don't know the literal translation, but we always see it as, I always see it as the 10 fetters. Um, fun fact that I just learned a couple weeks ago is that Sanskrit is the root of all languages. Amazing, huh? It's really old. <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> that is so amazing. Um, I'm also curious, how much Sanskrit do you know? Oh, well, you know, I, I just pick up terms from yeah. hanging out with Sensei and in my previous Zen practice um, and, and yoga as well. Um, so not, not too much. I, I took a class in Sanskrit, you know, one of the yoga trainings. So I got to learn some of the letters and that kind of thing. It put me on the street. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't ask where the bathroom is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the practical things. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I love Sanskrit. I always, what I really appreciate about Ashtanga is the, in doing a lead class is it. I love, I love the opening chant and I just love how it feels in my body saying that prayer and opening. And then also, um, just count, just the count in it, the counting in Sanskrit, it just, it, it makes it whole. It's almost another point of a focal point really to focus on and listen to. And it's just beautiful. Um, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I, I feel the same. Um, how long have you been practicing Ashtanga for? About 25 years. 25 years. How did you find Ashtanga? <laughs> Funny story. Um, so my friend and I were just visiting a bookstore in Lucadia, and the cute girl behind the counter said, are you here for the yoga class? <laughs> I turned to my friend and we turned back and said, yes. <laughs> so it was an Ashtanga class. It was beginning and yeah, I was really embarrassed because I had no flexibility, and, but it felt so good, and I, I wanted to keep doing it, and uh, it really stuck. So I ended up training with uh, Tim Miller, and on from there. Um, how did you find Pacific Ashtanga Yoga Shala? That same person behind the counter, I got to know her. She was a good teacher, one of Tim's students. Um, Allison Lewis, Allison Colin, is her name now? Said names, but anyways, <laughs> she recommended Diana. She oh, said cool. she's a wonderful person. You should go see her, her show. So I did. Cool. I think I don't even actually. I found I found the Shala by she did a Groupon for a lot like six seven years ago, and I did the Groupon and never left. <laughs> well, I did, but you know. <laughs> um, I want to come back and ask you really one more question here. And we'll I think this will carry in a little bit, but we touched on it, but I, I want to go back and ask you about your jhana experiences. Now, did you know when you, so first of all, can you tell us what it is one more time? And then my other question would be, did you know that that's what you were working towards through your practice. Um, yeah, I, I did. So 
there's different levels. Like I said, Buddha mapped them all out to to nirvana. So the, the first couple levels are, have very specific characteristics. Um, and I, I had met uh, Shibuya Sensei, had been practicing like, you know, one hour periods, four hours a day, three days a week, sometimes all night meditation. So I, I was really trying. I was really trying to get there. And he talked about it. So I, I knew that that's where I was headed. I didn't know what it was, though. I mean, how, how do you know what it is if you've never experienced it? Yeah. I just knew something was there, something good. So the first one, first jhana, um, it's characterized by separation, which means that nothing can disturb you. So it's different from nothing is disturbing you. You could go on a really wonderful vacation and have nothing disturb you, but that's not jhana. If you get to this state of, like I said, wholeness or presence, um, you feel really clear, really present, really blissful, really happy, and nothing can distribute. Um, the next, the second one I mentioned also, I'm going to talk about the first three because they're people talk about the third one a lot. You can really, they never get there. Um, you have to do them one. I mean, it's not like you can pick which one you want, right? Right, degrees of depth. So the second one, not only are you immune to disturbances for that period of time, you're immune to distraction. You have one thought, one experience that's persisting for half an hour, an hour, a couple hours, whatever. Feeling of your breath, you're feeling your breathing body and nothing can distract you from that. So the third one is when your concentration on your, say your breathing, is to such a point that you merge with it. When you merge with your object of concentration, your, okay, your okay. breathing body, if you merge with it, then you disappear. And the only thing that's there is breathing. Okay. So I mean, how do you talk about that? <laughs> right. It's no longer you here looking at your breath there. there there's just breathing here. Okay. So it's awesome. I don't, I haven't gotten it in a month or two, but it happens. Um, How many times have you gotten it? Oh, I can't count. I mean, that many? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, so they call that uh, non duality. But non duality is also used incorrectly a lot of times. When we say there's good and there's bad, there's hot and there's cold, that's not duality. Those are opposites, you know, an opposite pair, that kind of thing. Duality is subject, object, observer, observed. Non-duality is when there's no more observer, observed. You see what I mean? That's yeah, I I mean I I I can I can I can under I understand and I can almost imagine what that feels like, but in my it almost it's not scary, but it's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it feels it's exciting. Yeah, it feels almost like when I picture it, 
it almost feels like my whole body gets like sucked into a spiral and it's just the spiral. You know, that's just the, the breathing energy, but it's almost like the body disappears. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's really cool. <clears throat> and then to kind of tie yoga in with that is the, correct me if I'm wrong, cause I don't know, but is the, part of the purpose of yoga to be able to sit in a meditation position for a longer amount of time? Yeah, part of it. Um, so in the Shanga, there are eight limbs, right? Yeah. The last four limbs are basically the, the first four jhanas. Mm. Just use different adjectives. <laughs> so pratyahara, sense withdrawal, right? That's like being separate from anything that can disturb you. That's like first John. The second one is what Dharani, clear perception. So that's the same thing as not being distracted, not being distractible. Uh, I can't remember what the third one is. The well, fourth one is, uh, oh, I guess third one in yoga is uh, dhyana, absorption, literally absorption. So if you merge with your the object of your concentration, you're absorbed in it. And the fourth one is samadhi, which is just a little further. <laughs> I don't want to say too much because I, I don't know the fourth one very well. I'm pretty sure they're the same. It's just different adjectives, different teachers. Do you think in... On a, do you think that our societal perception is superficial when it comes to meditation of what it actually is or means? Yeah, and, and it, it has to be because before you experience, John, you don't know what's possible. So you can understand centering yourself. You can understand resolving issues and being happier. But can you understand that you are a being that is more than you? You have to experience it. And yeah, most people have never experienced that. And then even more superficially, there's probably a lot of people who think of it only as a technique to, um, to heal maybe psychological issues in that being idle is a waste of time. I had a great friend in grad school who said, why would I want to sit and do nothing? That's just a total waste of time. I, I'm curious is uh, I've had some, well, I want to share two things, but one, I've had some very, I would, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't, doesn't matter. We're just using words here, I guess, but I've had, I would call them like a little bit supernatural experiences. And I wonder if that would make me more open to understanding the depth of meditation and what can happen with it. You know, kind of like I've said with you yesterday and today, but I feel like the visuals is where I've kind of I don't want to say stomped, but that is kind of what gets me excited. And I almost think that that also 
makes me stop and kind of like close off a little bit because I do get excited about like what could happen. And it kind of like makes me nervous at the same time. So I think that's for me kind of like the next step to work through. And then my other thought was, um, I completely forget. (laughs) Let me, let me respond to that. Yeah, Yeah, please. Um, yeah, so if, if you're trying to develop psychic abilities and that kind of thing, fear is the thing that stops you the most. Yeah, you have to be relaxed and open. You have to be sensitive. Another term for a psychic is a sensitive. So, you know, fear is, fear is the natural obstacle there. Um, and actually with meditation, you can feel fear too. You can feel, who am I if I'm not thinking? Who am I? If I'm not these things that I think I am, it can be kind of scary. So yeah, you got you got to warm up to it, and that's why it doesn't happen overnight. I just wonder what the world would be like if more people approached meditation like this, in the sense of I'm not me my experience is not me. This is, there's a whole, I mean, I just feel like there would be a lot more compassion if more people got quiet. And I think that it's really, I, you know, it's so funny. And I I haven't had like an extreme trauma I've had traumatic things happen, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that they're trauma and some of the things that we might call traumatic, like, you know, seeing somebody die, had a loved one die or been brutally beaten or raped. But from the traumatic experiences that I have had and seeing how I've wrapped my identity and having those things have happened to me, it's a weird concept. It's not a weird concept, but to be able to actually detach from those emotions mm-hmm. and just that this, this is something that went through me that I experienced in my physical body, but this does not define me. This yeah. does not define <laughs> my future or my true self. Yeah. Let me share a metaphor and then a personal insight that I had along those lines. Um, So I I believe like the philosopher Hume that we are our memories. At the same time that I believe we are not our thoughts or our memories. So what you see, what what I'm interacting with, this, this thing that's happening here, that's me, this phenomena, that's me is a collection of my memories, my past. It's a result of my past. But it's not me. And so the metaphor is like, imagine that my past and my life is a story written on a page with a pen. The story is what you're interacting with, but I am the pen. I'm not the story. I'm totally free to move to the next page to stop writing, to write something different. 
You see, but if you think you are the story, then you're locked in. You, that pen can't move at all. So that's the metaphor. The, the personal insight that I've had, yeah, I've uh, had some traumas, but um, um, basically, I, I have, I had, uh, I made a bad choice when I was young, and so how do I hold that now? I mean. You think of regret, right? Like, oh, I wish I had done something different. I wish I had chosen differently. Um, but I think there's there's two words that are really key: guilt and regret. So, guilt implies that you're responsible for it, and regret is just you would have done something different had you known. So, me, Eric, 2022. I'm a different person than the person in, I don't know, 1994 when I made this choice. So I, I can't feel guilty because I'm a different person. I have grown since then. And in fact, the growth since then is what's causing me to feel guilty. <laughs> so it's actually a good thing. It's showing that I'm a different person and I'm a better person. So I don't think guilt is the right thing to say. I think regret is the right thing to say. Because it's identifying that, oh, there's a mistake. If I had known better, or if I were in that circumstance today, I would choose differently. So there's the growth. That's the growth, the growth part. Yeah. And then you, I mean, just like you're not a five-year-old anymore, you you're not gonna make the same choice that you made when you were five. And kind of tying this back into meditation when you're, when you're, let's say me, I'm 29 years old and I'm not the same person I was a year ago. And I probably wouldn't make the same choices that I would a year ago. And I probably wouldn't react the way that a year ago because I've spent time going inside my mind or I don't, is that is that what you would say going in, going inside our mind? Is that what what this would be? Spend time with yourself. Spend time facing yourself. Yeah, and then kind of seeing why those decisions were made a year ago, and what what was what how was I thinking? Why was I thinking that? And you can see from a different perspective. You can you can almost um, empathize with yourself. Yeah, you have to be compassionate with yourself. Yeah, compassionate with your past. You know, there's there's a whole field of psychology of with the inner child work where you yeah. imagine you're talking to your younger self. Yeah. But you know, the other opposite would be true too. Uh, suppose you make the same mistake over and over. And, and a good example here is you always date the wrong kind of person, right? Right. You're losing the wrong relationship. It's the same kind of relationship. You always pick that specific, um, a person with that specific problem. You know, it could be alcoholism. Maybe you're, you're always dating someone who's an alcoholic. So at that point, maybe you don't need compassion with yourself. You need to rely on that sense of guilt to propel you to do something different, Right. And then that would also be looking at the context 
is it the contents of your mind that you're looking at, but then asking yourself of why you choose people like that again and again, and what's the void that you're trying to fill that you haven't quite yet healed? Yeah. Yeah. That's confronting it. If you confront it, you can get through it. If you, if you just be compassionate with yourself and say, oh, I was a bad time. I won't do that again. You'll probably do it again. So, yeah, there's, there's these two extremes, one where you have grown and one where you haven't grown. So we have to look at the root and looking at the root of things would be getting incredibly quiet without any distractions to distract us from allowing us to gain those insights from our subconscious. Yeah, and it, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a whole field of meditation called Vipassana. Literally means insight. But in practice, they're using techniques to um, be more mindful. So mindfulness is half of meditation. You have to slow down also. Um, but the idea is through meditation, we gain insight into ourselves. It doesn't always happen at the moment of meditation. Um, and in fact, you know, these, these stages of enlightenment, it's usually you're just, you're out sweeping and then suddenly you, you're enlightened. You, you had some insight, you see the world differently. But it's all because of the meditation you've done over previous years. See, and that's why you were saying earlier, suddenly it just happens. You never know necessarily when it's going to, it's just going to like happen. <laughs> With time? There's two things. So when you're sitting in meditation, I was saying that the state of jhana, it happens abruptly. Yeah. That you're you're struggling against yourself to hold your concentration. And then suddenly it becomes easy. That's very distinctive. But then there's just the personal growth that happens throughout our life. That you might see something differently one day and it's just an epiphany, right? That may not be abrupt. It just depends on you. Um, I kind of have a personal question <laughs> okay. related to meditation. I guess this comes back to what we were talking about with fear. Cause I, I, I think for me, if I like notice something, it must be fear of actually what's going to happen because I get excited and like, oh, there it is. And then it's like gone. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that? Is that normal? Yeah, and how totally. do you move through that? <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I mean, it, it could be fear, but the the excitement is is its own issue. So, you know, I said I wouldn't say much about fourth jhana because I, I've only had it a few times. But my my feeling is that it's what you feel after the excitement of third jhana wears off. <laughs> so. But how do you talk about how how can you're not feeling excitement? There's no duality. There's there's just excitement, or there's just bliss. There's just breathing. Um, but yeah, so when people get close to first jhana, this sudden relief and sudden bliss after all the struggling, you can feel your skin tingling sometimes. It feels you're so excited. Oh, oh, something's about to happen. I I feel it. And you can get very excited, and then it goes away. Oh, no, (laughs) where did it go? That's very common. 
Yeah. So the, the only advice I can say is um, just let it let it happen. I don't know. Okay, another metaphor. Okay, a butterfly. You're trying to catch a butterfly. Right? <laughs> you have to let it land on you. You can't grab it. <laughs> wow. Um. All right. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to go this deep, but I'm I'm stoked about it. <laughs> I'm glad that we did. I I mean, okay. I guess my last question here would be, what advice would you give to somebody who is new on their meditation journey, or who's apprehensive to starting one? Um. I'd say find a group of people and and enjoy the social aspect of it. Um, if you see other people having the experience, then it's it's much easier, more welcoming. So the support of a sangha. Why do we practice yoga together? Well, are you? I don't know how am I answering that question, but <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, pressure's on me now. Oh, it's not just to meet cute girls, right? Right, right. right. The accountability part of it too, yeah. And it enhances the experience also. But like me doing yoga by myself or meditating, I mean, even just meditating on Zoom makes it, you're, you just, you feel, you feel supported really Mm -hmm. the same thing with yoga. So that makes sense why people like group workouts also because they have the support there. Good advice. Did I answer both questions? I guess so. Find a group. Do we have another one? What was the other question? Uh, I guess it wasn't. Just the advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting or apprehensive to it. Or I guess what, what, what advice would you give to somebody to encourage them to keep going on their meditation path? Let me ask that question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, the first couple of years, usually people are very excited. But that can wear off, and then you might give up. You might say, oh, I'd rather just go on vacation. And you know, in a sense, when you're, uh, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, emotional pain or whatever kind of pain, you, you can't do anything except for sit still. You, know? you have to sit still just to survive. Yeah. If you're in a good place in your life, and you're comfortable, and you're happy, then you don't have to sit still. So meditation is just a practice that better prepares you for difficulties. Uh, it helps you discover that you can be even happier than you think you can be. It's beautiful. Well, thank you for your time this evening. Anytime. I learned a lot. Well, probably have to do it again because I don't think we could probably talk another three hours about this. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are on a mission to get 1,000 subscribers. If you could help us out, that would be amazing. And if you have somebody who is interested in starting a meditation practice, or we're not sure what it is, or if you want to deepen your understanding, please share this episode with them. And we look forward to seeing you guys next week on the World of Wellness podcast.